any veterans here? If you are here, would you please stand up or raise your hand or let us uh, just thank you and give you all a round of applause. Um, every time there's something like this throughout the week, I, I just feel that it's appropriate just to pray because um, while, um, you know, there's, there's quite a few veterans who go through hard times, so let's just lift them up in prayer real quick before we get started. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, uh, we first want to just pray for our, um, our military as a whole, Lord, the, the people who lay down their lives to, um, to protect us, Father, but um, specifically, we just want to thank you for those who have already served, Lord, and who are back here, and, and um, in particular, the ones dealing with, uh, with different struggles, Lord, from just the, the traumatic uh, stress of, of coming back and, and not being in in that constant um, danger, Lord, and, and, and uh, have to get back to regular life. Father, we pray for your peace that uh, surpasses all understanding to, to come on them and their family, Lord, and give them guidance and wisdom and, and put people in their lives who can, um, who can help them deal with this. And, uh, and, uh, and Lord, those who struggle getting um, professions, Lord, and jobs, and, and we pray that you provide for them in a way when they... Um, Lord, their job has been just so, so different for so long. And, um, and Lord, we just want to thank you again for those who, uh, who serve us in this way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, well, today I felt like God wanted to talk about unity, um, which is kind of ironic, I guess, given this past week. But uh, maybe it's not as ironic as it is appropriate. Um, as divided as this country is when it comes to politics, at least we're only divided into a couple small groups. But from what I can find, there's somewhere between around like 38,000 different Christian denominations within the United States, give or take a few thousand, depending on you know which study you look at. But um, but that's a lot of division for people who serve one God. Differences in personal opinion, belief, and practice have caused the church as a whole to divide and remain segregated ever since Jesus was raised to life. But are these differences really that essential um, to our unified fellowship as Christ followers? And how did the early church deal with this issue? And there are a few differences in belief and practice that Paul addresses in chapter 14 of his letter written to the believers in Rome. Um, so we're going to read through Romans 14 entirely, but then go back and cover it again um, in kind of a sporadically. So, uh, so bear with me and keep your Bibles open to this chapter as we go through it. Um, and we're going to see how important these essentials are that the Romans are arguing over. So if you would just turn to me. Romans chapter 14, um, I'm reading from the NASB, so it may be a little bit different, but all right, it says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? 
To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us is to give an account, or each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him who Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So in this chapter, Paul differentiates between the group of Christians in Rome into two kind of groups. He says you have the weak Christians and the strong Christians. Now, of course, this is not physical weakness, but it is important to note that this is not weakness in moral character either. So Paul calls it a weakness of faith, and he specifies that in um, verse 1. And what Paul is speaking about when it comes to weak versus strong faith is their personal convictions about something, about what your conscience is speaking to you. Paul makes it clear that the one who is strong in faith believes that through the grace that God offers us, we are free to live out from underneath the pre-described rules and regulations of the Old Testament law. All that the Jewish people knew were rigid and unforgiving laws that needed to be obeyed. But Paul says that the one who has strong faith is the one who understands that grace is the means of their salvation, not their obedience to the rules. And this truth goes completely against what the people of that time believed and had known for centuries. 
And this is a kind of a side note, but I think that this is also the reason why King David was called a man after God's own heart, because he knew that no matter how many times he stumbled and he falled or fell, which were many, of course, you know, um, he knew that he could return to God's grace with genuine repentance and be received by God in the same way verse 3 says that God receives both the weak and the strong. Now, this in no way means that a Christian of strong faith is then allowed to sin or behave immorally without consequence. Paul does not imply that following rigid rules is, a, is foolish or wrong in any way. This chapter is actually saying that there is a difference between sins against God and sins against your own conscience. So think of it like this. There are some things that are just blatant sins against God. Take any of the Ten Commandments as an example. But there are conclusions that Christians come, have come to about certain topics that aren't as clear-cut as whether or not stealing a goat out of someone's backyard is right or wrong. And these are the topics that are being addressed in this chapter. These are the topics that have eclipsed the truly essential piece of simply knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so the church is kind of becoming divided over these non-essentials. And the two that are being called into question here in Rome are which day is observed and which foods are clean to eat. Both of these topics are explicitly talked about in the Old Testament laws. The Jews observe Saturday as the exclusive Sabbath day, and there was and still are for modern Jews a clear list of what foods are clean and not clean to eat. Pagan butchers in that time would offer up the meats that they would sell to idols before selling it. And so after accepting Jesus, knowing about this practice, because they had done it much themselves, they would kind of get a, a check in their spirit and they would just decide not to partake of any of the meat that was sold and eat only vegetables. And, you know, the text in this chapter doesn't really clearly indicate what exactly the issue was surrounding the food, but knowing that knowledge kind of helps you give some context about the time and understanding, you know, why that, that might be. So, you know, you can almost infer that, but... Either way, as the div this diverse group of Christians grew, the church was having trouble coming to a conclusion about what to do as one group believed one way and another group believed another. And so what does Paul tell them? Does he tell them to split and create new churches and new denominations over this? Does he declare which way is best and demand that one group suck it up so they can move on? He doesn't. He affirms the actions of both parties under one condition, that they are fully convinced in their own minds. Let's read verses 5 and 6. It says, One person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes one day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So you see, it doesn't really outright say that one way is wrong. Both of these groups do what they do to bring glory to God. One gives thanks, the other gives thanks. It's all about bringing glory to God, and that's what's important. This idea is reiterated in Colossians 3.17, which says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Glorifying God is the motivation of both parties. So neither one is necessarily wrong. Now Paul does go on to say in verse 14 that he has concluded that all food is clean, but that doesn't mean that he is engaging in arguments with those who believe otherwise and attempts to persuade them to believe this way or not. You know, that's not really what you're, what he's, that's not his intention when he gathers with all these believers. Paul actually says that it is the responsibility of the stronger in faith to honor the weak, the weaker person to change their behavior, to honor the weaker person and change their behavior as not to offend their brother. So the stronger in faith is to, to kind of change a little bit so that they don't offend the others. And whenever you have people behaving in this way or in a way that's different from you, especially in a way that you deem you know, maybe wrong, people will get offended. So I'm going to read verse 3 once again. It says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Paul talks about how each group is not to hold the other in an ill mindset. All right? Paul points out the danger of taking offense when not agreeing on these non-essential issues. He says that the strong should not despise or regard with contempt the weak. And why would they do that? Well, I think because they're having to change their behavior to not offend or cause another to stumble. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little ironic that I get this kind of attitude put towards me when I'm interacting with non-believers that I, um, that I know. You know, and, and I, I'm talking to them and I interact with them. A lot of my friends are this way where I'll, I'll say that I'm a pastor and they kind of, they have to like change their attitude a little bit. They have to change their words. They have to change the topics that we're talking about, their actions, you know, which fingers they hold up and so on and so forth. And it's like, you know, they, they, they do this and it's, you know, they get this kind of attitude that I'm like the pooper of parties here because now they have to change the way they behave so that they don't offend me. And they have to pull the rain backs on the, the reins back on their freedom that they have as a way to be considerate to me so that I won't be you know, tainted by their sin. And you know, that's fine until I start to notice this attitude that Paul is referring to here. You know, they act like, well, I wish you really weren't around so that I could act freely in my freedoms and my attitudes that I think are okay. And he also calls for the weak not to judge the strong for exercising their freedom. And I think that that one kind of goes, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit more self-explanatory. So despising and judging, these are the two things that he's calling them not to do. And isn't it funny that these are the two things, both of these things don't really require any kind of action at all. You know, they can be done mostly without using any kind of words. Both of these issues arise in the heart and in the mind. And neither necessarily has to be done through action in order for its damage to be done. Paul goes after the root of this issue. He knows that despising and judging others causes a spiritual division within the body of the person 
which can then lead to a physical division within the body of Christ. So I'll say that again. He knows that despising and judging others can cause a spiritual division within the person who's doing it that can then lead to a physical division of the body of Christ, which is the church. And so these church splits, these churches will split over this stuff. And Paul doesn't want them to avoid one another and then so forsake the gathering together with their fellow believers, but he challenges them to fix their own attitudes so that they can worship together in harmony. We can so easily build up resentment for one another based on non-essential differences in belief and in practice and come to the conclusion that because of the offense taken, we, you know, because of the offense that we've taken by someone else's actions, then we must part ways. But I think if we were honest, this is just a prideful act of not being willing to look past our differences for the sake of unity, or at least discuss them in, in you know, somewhat of a civil manner. Because what unifies us? Is it the way we baptize? Is it how we dress? Is it our stance on whether or not to celebrate Halloween? Is it how we take communion? I mean, communion is one of the most unifying pictures of God's grace that he has given to us. It's of believers of all kinds partaking of one bread and one cup as a symbol of God's immeasurable grace and forgiveness for all sins. That we would all come together and as one say, this is body, this is Jesus' body given for us. And this is his blood which was shed for us. And yet it has been the grounds of so much division within the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many of these are about intentionally dividing people? How many in this list is about intentionally dividing people against one another in some way? We have disputes, dissensions, envying, enmities, strife, jealousy, and factions. Factions. You know, I went into my dictionary app, and you know what I came across as a synonym for denominations? Yeah, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I'll tell you it was factions. It was listed as one of the synonyms. And, you know, we go around and we're like, well, what denomination are you with? You know, and all this, and we talk about that, and we like to celebrate our denomination. When it's, you know, it's attributed as a deed of the flesh amongst sorcery and idolatry, which, you know, all of us would be like, oh, no, not sorcery and idolatry, but factions, you know, within the church, but also within the body of church, of the body of Christ as a whole. You know, we are too comfortable with division. And that is why I like to refer to myself as a Christ follower and not just necessarily a Christian, because Christian can mean so many things nowadays when it's actually supposed to mean just one thing, that it's a Christ follower. Because he is who unites us, the person of Jesus. 
So I'm sorry to get off track a little bit, but you, you see how much God doesn't approve of his people being, being divided over non-essential issues. So Paul shifts gears a little as we pick up in verse 13. We'll just read through to the end real quick. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him who Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is, from, is not from faith is sin. And so here Paul introduces the concept of being a stumbling block by behaving in a way that would cause another believer to sin against his own God-given conscience. And this is interesting, it's an interesting point because Paul is saying that even though the actions of one person to them are not sinful, they may be sinful to someone else. You know, look at, look at verse 14. It says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is. Paul is confirming that he practices what he preached in verse 5. That he had become fully convinced in his own mind that nothing, like for instance food sacrificed to idols, is unclean. But he is not naive or prideful in assuming that everyone else thinks the same way that he does. Because some people still believe that eating meat sacrificed to idols is wrong. So if Paul causes one of these people to eat when that person is not fully convinced that it's okay to eat, well, then Paul has caused that person to sin against his conscience as stated in verse 23. And this confirms that while we are, there are a great many things that are clearly and undebatably wrong, there are many, things, many other things that could be permissible for one and not for another. And that just, it really just goes to show like how God cares so much more about the relationship that he has with that person and not the rules-based devotion that he had had with his people for centuries and centuries before. You know, how great is the grace of God that he emphasizes the importance of listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, which was implanted in us at salvation over downloading within us just a bunch of rules that we must rigidly and unwaveringly follow. He knows us better than anyone. He knows the, uniquely, the unique destiny that he has called each of us to. And he knows our weaknesses and our strengths. And for this reason, he allows us to unveil truths about his nature and our own nature through our pursuit of him. And we all move at different speeds. So what are we to do? You know, here we are, 
much like the new believers in Rome. From different backgrounds and cultures, we have different salvation stories, we have different struggles and different strengths and different opinions when it comes to the non-essentials. And I think verses um, 16 through 19 sum it up well. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing or your Christian freedom be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I love that. I love that Paul is, he's almost like making fun of this idea, you know, poking a joke at like this whole issue. He is taking the grandness of the kingdom of God and stating the obvious and the kind of laughable fact that it's not all about what we eat and drink, you know. But believe it or not, it's about so much more. So stop making major issues over minor differences. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So he says that when you stop making such a big deal over these minor differences, not only will you be approved by God, but you also be approved by men, which is a concept that is encouraged throughout all of scripture. You know, to live at peace and in harmony with all men. And this leads to verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. So we, as a church body, are to be advocates for peace and encouraging one another to grow in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And all of this is for the sake of unity. You know, as Christians and just as people in general, we like to focus on the differences between us. Paul tells us that we ought to focus on our commonalities, and when we do that, you know, when we focus on the commonalities, then we're actually going to start looking like the church that God intended, you know, a united church. And after this past week, you know, would you say that the enemy is focused on dividing us apart? You know, it doesn't matter how we differ on the small stuff. When we gather here, we focus on one thing, the corporate worship of our God. And we didn't get to chapter 15, but I did want to close with a couple of verses that, that show why unity is necessary for healthy worship. Romans 15 Verses five through six say this. May the patience and encouragement that come from God allow you to live in harmony with each other the way that Jesus Christ wants. Then you will all be joined together and will give glory to God, the Father of our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's just pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Um, we come together as, as one group, Father, and, and uh, as Christ followers. And Lord, we want to, um, we want to follow you to the, to the best of our ability, Lord, and, and we want to, um, to walk together as you would want us to. And so, Father, even though we all have different opinions and a lot of them have just been voiced in this week and uh, we have different ideas just about, um, about how we are to follow you, Father, we, we acknowledge that that is just one of the, the great um, just gifts of your grace that you've given us to be able to, um, 
to just go and, and walk with you and grow with you and, uh, and mature um, through our relationship with you. And so, Father, we, we do pray that you give us uh, one mind on the, uh, the issues that we need to um, view as essential, Lord, and, and let us not um, cause one another to stumble through our actions or through our words, um, but, but help us just to, to be humble, Lord, and to, uh, to seek that peace um, amongst one another so that we can together, in one voice, uh, bring glory to you through... Um, through our time here on, on Sunday mornings and, and elsewhere where we gather, Father. And, um, and Lord, we do just also want to take the time to pray for the success of these, uh, these surrounding churches, Lord, that, um, that are also seeking to, uh, to glorify you. Father, we pray for their leadership. We pray for their, um, their congregations, that, that you would grow these churches as they, um, as they grow closer to you, Father, and help them to, uh, to prosper in... Um, in the mission that uh, to bring you glory, ultimately, Father, that's all we want. And um, so, Lord, we we just pray this now, and we thank you again, Father, for for your Son, who we are here to celebrate. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>